50 years ago, in the shadow of a Holocaust that would claim more than six million lives, a young German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, turned to the church with a challenge from the Word of God. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all the unfortunate. I'm Chuck Colson, and today, half a century later, that plea for action is burning in my heart and mind. For right now in America, another Holocaust rages in even greater proportions. It is the hidden Holocaust of abortion. The facts are horrifying. Since the Supreme Court's 1973 decision, more than 15 million abortions have been performed. Today, one out of three pregnancies is terminated, a life taken surgically every 20 seconds. Though these facts are widely published, the debate continues. In this film, you will hear from both sides. And I must offer this warning, you will see some very graphic material. You may find it hard to watch. But what you see is happening in your community, and you must not turn away. For to ignore evil is to bear the guilt of condoning it. Of all people, the followers of Christ cannot, must not, ignore evil. You see, that's what Bonhoeffer was warning the church in Germany against. And for the most part, it looked the other way. Are we doomed to repeat that same awful mistake? For what is at issue now is what was at issue then, the sanctity of human life. How we regard human life is a most basic test of our fidelity to the truth of God. It conditions everything else about our values as a people. If man is created in the image of God, then life is absolutely sacred. But if man is only a cosmic accident, well, then if some lives pose an inconvenience or interfere with our so-called free choices, those lives can be quietly disposed of in the dumpsters and incinerators of abortion clinics. Today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is widely admired for calling the church to stand against the murder of the Jews. What would he say of the present Holocaust? He has already spoken. Listen to what he wrote before being imprisoned by the Nazis. Destruction of the embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to life which God has bestowed. To raise the question whether the embryo is a human being is merely to confuse the issue. The simple fact is that this human being has been deliberately deprived of his life. And that is nothing but murder. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. That is God's challenge to us today, and we dare not turn away. America, the golden land. The dream of immigrants from five continents for over two centuries. America, a land of power and beauty and wealth. A country enjoying the highest standard of living of any nation in the entire history of the earth. America, a land of unparalleled freedom. A nation conceived in liberty. that was born in conflict and that has held in balance every internal force. A proud country that has never known defeat. America today is involved in another desperate conflict.
Much of the action takes place behind the scenes, set in clinics, homes, and hospitals. Many Americans aren't even aware of this struggle, so brace yourself, because before this film is over, you will visit the bloody fields of battle. You'll meet the people involved in the fighting on both sides, which includes some of the most influential figures in America today. And perhaps for the first time, you'll understand the reasons behind their struggle. Our story concerns abortion and begins, strangely enough, in this relatively peaceful suburb of Los Angeles. Malvin Weisberg, a pathologist, owned a large storage container which he kept in his backyard. When he failed to make the final two payments, it was repossessed. Um, we made a decision to repossess it because his uh, check did not clear the bank. And so we sent the truck out to pick up the container. I rolled out there and uh, took the box up and uh, started pulling it up. And uh, it, it was so heavy, it, just, uh, it broke, the, broke the winch. And we couldn't get it off the trailer, so we had to leave it on the trailer because it was too heavy. So I was asked by Nick to have a crew go down and unload the container at the other yard. I got a radio call that, uh, from Ron Gillette, the foreman. And he said the men were throwing up and there was something really wrong. One of them fell down and hit me right in front of my feet. And it was opened up, and there it was. It was, a, it was a mutilated body. And the more closer I looked at it, it was a human body. And when I came to work the following day, I, uh, I saw it myself. I couldn't believe it. And just, you know, just look at babies, you know, just all torn in pieces. My hands chopped off, arms, legs, you know, just, uh, it just makes you sick see something like that. Well, it really, just, you know, it makes you want to cry when you see something like that. Starting at the very front of this container, it was just wall clear to the ceiling and clear to the sides, filled with them. I really don't want to witness it again. Not, not what I saw. Well, as a supervisor for the county of Los Angeles, we found out through the, through the media that 17,000 infants had been uh, stored in a container. So we asked for an investigation by the district attorney and the coroner's office. We found approximately 190 were over 20 weeks of age. I think some as, as long as, uh, as old as 25, 27 weeks. Uh, Mr. Antonovich contacted Mr. Gutierrez. Glenn Wong is a funeral director for a major Los Angeles mortuary. Uh, Asked us uh, to go ahead and handle the burial of the fetuses. How I came involved was uh, they were asking if it were possible to have anyone photograph these fetuses. And I so happened to be also a photographer. How many fetuses were actually involved in the autopsies? Uh, there were approximately about 40, 44, uh, if I'm correct. And why were the autopsies performed? Uh, they were to find out why uh, or what was the reason of the cause of death. That wasn't apparent? Um, apparently not. Now, I've seen some of these fetuses, and believe me, they were apart. There were some where the uh, eyes were bulging and somewhere the uh, chest cavity was ripped open. I do remember one was where I saw a hand and the feet all apart. So it was kind of like the hands were intact, the feet were intact, and everything else was more like uh, just a little potpourri, a little of everything. And that's, that was it. That kind of turned me. We had the court order that would allow us to bury these infants. Being 
a humane act. And the ACLU comes in again saying that uh, this is just uh, tissue. Uh, we want to incinerate them and there's no need for a burial. We ought, because if you had a burial, somehow that's going to create a problem. Problem for whom? And at that time, I think everybody there realized this was wrong. That it, that it was really wrong. They could, everybody standing there felt that way. Even the coroner's office, I could sense that they were treating this like it was, they were dead people, and they are dead people. That's, that's the way everybody treated it. Evidently, the ACLU doesn't feel that way. And then transferred it all into the, to the original container, and as I understand, it's still up in a county yard someplace. Is it refrigerated? No, it's in a steel container. How long, do you have any idea how long it'll be there? I don't know, but it's been two years now, so it, who knows. Although the discovery of 17,000 fetuses in a trash container is not an everyday occurrence, it is an event that should surprise no one. For every three days, an equivalent number of fetal children are disposed of in this country. 17,000. The story behind these amazing statistics really begins in 1973 when the Supreme Court handed down its momentous Roe v. Wade decision. It took Justice Harry Blackmun a full year to write his majority opinion. The result of that decision was to legalize abortion instantaneously. This one, as indeed I tried in the, I think, the second paragraph of that opinion to uh, uh, to indicate the basic controversial and emotional aspect of the issue. I, I pulled no punches in that respect. Roe versus Wade breaks the nine months before birth into three intervals. Up to three months in the womb, a woman can abort the growing child without restriction. From three months to six months, the states may make laws on where and how abortions can be done, but cannot prohibit abortions. After six months, the states can stop abortions, but not if the mother's physical or mental health might be endangered. These vague conditions amount to authorizing abortion up to the day of birth. And uh, I think you can uh, think of any name to call someone, and I've been called it uh, uh, butcher of that cow, murderer, uh, Pontius Pilate, King Herod, you name it, it, it's all in there. Some of it is very intemperate. On the other hand, some of the, uh, the letters that I received, the, without any question, some of the most wonderful letters that one could imagine. The nine justices are necessarily, I think, by the time they arrive here, persons of fairly strong convictions. And uh, they're not going to be pushed pushed around, they, they've had experience in the law, and each of them uh, feels that his, uh, his attitude probably is the correct one. But, uh, but only, it, only yours really is, right? <laughs> well, I've learned the hard way that I'm often wrong. Among those who disagreed with Justice Blackmun's opinion was constitutional authority Robert Byrne, professor of law at Fordham University. Justice Blackman said there was no consensus in medicine or science or religion to say when a human life begins. Well, there certainly has been a consensus throughout our law that the common law 
from its very beginnings, from Bracton in the 12th century. Uh, the whole thrust of the common law is to find out when does the human life begin in the womb. And from then on, we're going to protect it. And of course, you know, even before Roe against Wade, we, we had certain justices of the Supreme Court uh, in an earlier environmental decision indicating that, that meadows should be persons. So the meadow would have a right to exist. Justice Blackman quotes John Donne and says, uh, every man's death diminishes me because I'm involved with mankind. Well, for goodness sake, uh, what about the death of babies? <laughs> he said that in connection with the death of a meadow. But since Roe versus Wade, there really hasn't been the need for that kind of justification of the procedure. Dr. Bernard and Towers is a professor of anatomy, psychiatry, and pediatrics at UCLA and an advocate of abortion rights. I spoke to him and to Dr. Bernard Nathanson, a New York obstetrician who was previously a leader in the abortion rights movement on the scientific view of human life. Was the Roe versus Wade the right decision? Well, I wouldn't say it was the right decision. I would say that it was a decision made in the scientific vacuum uh, and lacking any of the data we have today, it was probably at least a logical decision. Uh, but certainly a decision born strictly out of ignorance. It doesn't seem to me that the medical profession was ever very strongly pro-abortion. But I think the overriding uh, issue here is economics, money. Uh, the abortion industry is about a half a billion dollar a year industry. I think we are a service, a service industry. One is always reluctant to try to assassinate Santa Claus. Dr. Towers, when does human life begin? Well, that's a very strange question. See, it is quite clear that every cell in our bodies is alive. Well, not every cell. There are cells that are dying all the time, of course, but uh, certainly the cells which provide the basis for the, for the newly developing uh, fertilized egg, those cells, the egg itself and the sperm, are living human cells. Uh, the sperm has only 23 chromosomes, and the egg has only 23 chromosomes. Whereas every human being, including the human being that is formed at conception, has 46 chromosomes. So in that sense, the sperm and the egg are not complete human beings. When they unite together, the product of that union is itself a living cell. The whole question is whether, from a scientific, biological point of view, one can say that a cell is a human being or is a fellow citizen. I personally think it is inappropriate. Life in the uterus uh, before birth is a smooth continuum. And uh, in that sense, one cannot designate at some point when life begins. There is no bar mitzvah in the uterus. It is merely life beginning when it really begins. Now, we've created it in the test tube. We've watched it start. We have seen the spark struck in in vitro fertilization, when the sperm meets the egg. So that the question of when life begins is no longer metaphysical, theological, legal, moral, religious. It is absolutely scientific now, and it has been established to begin at conception. Talking with Gloria Allred, a prominent feminist attorney, and to the director of the ACLU's program on abortion, Janet Binshoff, it seemed the objections to the personhood of the fetus were more sociological than scientific. 
How does the ACLU look at the rights of the fetus or the unborn child? Well, first of all, uh, I agree with the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade, which stated that the fetus is not a person um, under our American Constitution, so that the fetus does not have the protections of law that you and I have. As to the abortion issue, the fetus is not considered a person under the Constitution of the United States and therefore uh, has no rights whatsoever because only a person has rights under the United States Constitution. And that person is the mother. If the fetus could be scientifically proven to be a person, um, a human being, would the ACLU step in to defend its rights? Well, we know what the fetus is biologically and scientifically. I don't think anything has changed in the last 20 years. We know that the fetus is a potential human being. We know that the fetus is alive. We're not denigrating the status of the fetus, but you must remember that the fetus is part of a woman and that the, the woman is the, the person who is directly affected by the pregnancy and by the childbearing. So there isn't going to be any scientific advance that's going to make the American Civil Liberties Union change their position at all. In fact, I think, you know, we've, we've become yearly very much more strongly committed to knowing that in order for women's equality to go forward, women must be able to control their own bodies. I, for one, had an abortion when it was illegal and unsafe, and I almost died having that. And as a young woman, it was a very frightening, traumatic experience. And I always said that if one day I could do anything to make sure that in the future, safe and legal abortions could be available to other young people if they needed them, that I would do my part. So that is why we will never give up that right to choose safe and legal abortions, no matter what the law does. And we will continue to fight for that right for our daughters. Uh, it's been said that in our country, uh, in the 18th century, the Bible was killed. Uh, in the 19th century, God was killed. And therefore, in consequence, in the 20th century, man gets killed. Commenting on society's radically changing viewpoint on abortion is educator, philosopher, and attorney, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Uh, no, if you don't define the beginning of human life at the moment of conception, you will necessarily define it functionally at some other juncture. It'll be defined in terms of what the kid or the adult is able to do. It won't be in terms of what the person is, but what the person is able to produce. Uh, for example, once his brain waves start operating, then he's a person. Or once his heart beats, he, he's a person. Or once he can accomplish this, that, or the other thing, he is a valuable member of society. Uh, the necessary consequence of this is that uh, the minute that the society no longer values what you do or what I do, then that same society may very well want to get rid of us. One response to this change in values is the picketing of local abortion clinics nationwide. We visited this demonstration in Southern California, attended by over 200 pro-life protesters. Why are you here today? Because we just want to make a stand that we don't think abortion is right, and we want people to know that. We would like to have more of all the different denominations of Christians and non-Christians uh, join in with us and say, we believe in life. We're not going to be silent anymore. It's 
took on too long to sit back and watch these babies die. And I'm here because I believe that the pastors especially should now take a stand. And I believe that we should leave our comfortable offices and homes and, and congregations that we've kept together and get back out in the street where the Lord wants us. As the march continued, I became aware of a few protesters who felt so strongly about this issue that they intended to go inside the clinic and demand to see the doctors. Among them was a retired police chief from Santa Ana, California, Ed Allen. You say you're here to plead with the doctors. Do you mean you're actually going inside? Yes. That's what we're here for. We endeavor to make them understand the seriousness of the crime that they're committing. What is your name, please? Gloria. Gloria Butler. What are you going to do in there? I'm going to save babies' lives. That's what we're going in. I'm going to speak to the doctor about abortion, let him know what he's doing. What if they want to come out and speak to you? Well, then we'll just wait until they do. Having heard the arguments on both sides of the issue, we traveled to Washington to meet the leaders of action organizations. I first talked with Jean Doyle of the National Right to Life Committee, and then with Nanette Falkenberg of the National Abortion Rights Action League, known as NARAL. Mrs. Doyle, how did the National Right to Life Committee begin? It began actually in 1973 as a formal organization. And it began because there was a real need for a clearinghouse or a focal point for the right to life people who had already been busy back in their states. There were euthanasia bills, experimentation bills, abortion bills in various states. And we were trying to hold back the tide. NARAL was founded in 1969 before the Supreme Court had made abortion legal in this country. And the main purpose of it when it was founded was to help legalize abortion on a state-by-state -state basis. Subsequent to that, as the so-called pro-life movement became more and more um, political, and the pro-choice movement was perceived as being very weak, the focus of the organization changed in about 1979 and 1980 to become very much a political, a politically focused organization. Well, what is your greatest threat from the pro-life movement now? I think I would say number one is um, the changing of the court, because if the makeup of the Supreme Court were to change, which it will because a lot of the justices are getting on um, in years, that the, the decision could potentially be overturned. And then finally, I think the final arena, the battle will be won in the legislative arena. There's no question about that. But I think without the other two building blocks, without educating ourselves and others, as to what the issue is all about and what, how high the stakes are. If we do not do that first, we'll motivate no one. We'll motivate no one in the citizenry, we'll motivate no one in the legislature, and we'll never get to that final arena victory, the legislation itself. Another major voice for the right to life is the American Life Lobby. I spoke with its founders, Paul and Judy Brown. Now, when I think of American Life Lobby, I think of lobbying here in Washington, D.C. You also do that. What we've learned is that politicians uh, might admire the fact that we have a professional lobbyist on our staff, but that they really are not going to listen to him. They will listen to people from his district who contact him and say, I can vote you out of office and I want you to do this. 
but you know there are many groups uh, and a number of individuals who have have made it a crusade or a campaign, as it were, uh, to try to. Faye Waddington is president of Planned Parenthood International, the most powerful pro-abortion organization in the United States. Well, in the area of education, do you treat abortion along with other means of birth control? Well, abortion is not treated along with other means of birth control per se. We we uh, consider abortion as a means or one option available to a woman facing an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, if a young woman has become pregnant and has made the decision based on information and, and knowledge of the options available to her to have a pregnancy, she has demonstrated a measure of maturity uh, that should not be ignored. Uh, we certainly encourage young people to discuss these matters with their parents, but they know better what the situation is and what their relationships are. And the greater good here is gained by giving the young woman the means to end an unwanted pregnancy than by upholding uh, a standard of parental authority uh, that really doesn't serve anyone any good. good so you go back to 1963, I believe it was, and there's a Planned Parenthood pamphlet distinguishing contraception from abortion. And the Planned Parenthood pamphlet says that, that uh, abortion kills the life of a child after it has begun. Now, there was a little bit of consensus there, wasn't there? That was the old consensus before we decided to devalue a particular class of human beings. Do you think that a woman should be advised of the progress of the fetus before an abortion? Many women simply don't want to know that information, and for the state to require that a message be given to her about that information is just totally inappropriate. Uh, we want to give people as much information as they desire to have. Uh, you will find sex instruction programs that deal with abortion as a method of birth control over and over again. Simple little games where a group of children can sit around a table and uh, play an actual game about their human sexuality. If a little girl, for example, draws a card from the deck and finds out she's pregnant, she's given three options. She can keep her baby, she can get an abortion, or she can give the baby up for an adoption. And lo and behold, if she chooses the abortion uh, chip, which is blue in color, she's won the game. And yet they say they don't encourage abortion. Republican Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah co-sponsored a constitutional human life amendment that aroused tremendous interest in the pro-life world. And how was it changed by the time it got to the Senate floor? Well, all of us would like to pass an amendment that would uh, allow abortion only to save the life of the mother and not for all of these other reasons. But we concluded that the only way we could get a debate on the floor of the Senate, the first in the history of the Congress on a constitutional amendment, was to bring a more moderate amendment to the floor, which basically said this, that we would give concurrent jurisdiction to both the House Senate uh, in the federal government and the uh, state legislatures throughout the country to resolve the issue of abortion. So at least getting it to the floor of the Senate was a victory for you? Oh, it was a terrific victory. We, we've never even be, been able to debate this issue on its merits except through ad hoc amendments brought up during various sessions of Congress. I've been told so many times, uh, Jesse, back off of this issue. Uh, it's killing you back home. Uh, the feminists don't like you and others don't like you because... North Carolina Republican Jesse Helms has repeatedly sponsored pro-life legislation in the Senate. My answer to that is, if I have to back off on this issue, I would prefer to go home because I'm not going to sell my soul to stay in the United States Senate. 
but I was involved in the battle before that. Staunchly advocating abortion rights is Republican Senator Robert Packwood of Oregon. You know, who knows what the original reason is that causes you to do something, but for years and years and years I have felt that a woman ought to have a right to make that choice whether or not she wants an abortion, and I've been involved in that battle for almost 20 years now. On what do you base this belief? It's hard to tell. Uh, it, it, in, intuition, uh, growing up, uh, influence of parents, who knows where it initially comes from. All I know is that you are never going to have equality in this country for women so long as you've got a law in the books that says women can have equality, ah, but they can't have equality on this issue. I just think that there ought to be an understanding of, uh, of what an abortion is. And this is one thing on the Senate floor that frustrates me. Uh, you cannot get Senator Kennedy and the rest of them to uh, discuss what an abortion is. And I think we could have a great deal of progress if we would just have an understanding on that question alone. It's not just uh, the removal of scar tissue. It's not just uh, a matter of surgery. It is the deliberate termination of innocent human life. And uh, I'm just never going to be among those who condone that. The Supreme Court decision legalized abortion. It's been over a decade now, and yet there's a tremendous amount of opposition. Are you surprised? Yes and no. I'm not surprised at the in intensity of the little knot of opposition. And it's not a majority. It, it, it isn't, a, it isn't a, a great quantity of people. If you were to ask the average American, uh, what are the top 20 issues you're concerned about in this country? I don't think abortion would show up on the top 20. But you do have a hard core of zealots uh, uh, parading around under the name of Right to Life or the Life Political Action Committee or something like that that have never given up. Now, time is not on their side. They're going to lose. They know that. I think everybody else knows that. The Supreme Court decision is going to stand, I hope. A group of us inside what we call the pro-life caucus, which was... Congressman Robert Dornan wound things up. This is so basic to our existence. As a, as a decent people on the planet Earth, that this struggle will never, ever, ever go away. Political Action Committee is the National Right to Life Political Action Committee helps to elect pro-life legislators, according to its president, Sandy Falsher. And they've become uh, very much a part of the American political scene now because this happens to be a nation of joiners and people who are concerned with an issue or a topic tend to join together so they can speak with one voice. Are there polls or statistics to show what part a pro-life, pro-choice issue can play in winning or losing an election? Absolutely. It can make all the difference in the world. It's very clear that the pro-life vote is more meaningful and more abundant than the pro-abortion vote and can, in fact, make the difference in an election. Medical doctor Carolyn Gerster of Phoenix, Arizona, commented on the parallels between abortion and slavery. That study, of course, began with the Supreme Court decision, the Dred Scott decision. Tell us about that. There is a tremendous parallel with the decision itself. And uh, I think this was brought home to me uh, so much when my uh, fourth boy, who was then nine, came home from Keith Elementary School and uh, was asked to write a paragraph on the Dred Scott decision. We looked at that encyclopedia and a variety of books. And I found an interesting statement by Chief Justice Taney uh, the majority decision, he was the Chief Justice. And I'll never forget, I'm going to paraphrase it, but uh, he said in essence, uh, look, we're not making slavery compulsory. 
uh, every American citizen has the right to choose whether or not to own a slave. But the abolitionist should not impose his morality on the slave owner. And I turned to my nine-year-old and I said, Mark, that sounds reasonable to me. Does that sound reasonable to you? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And with that infinite wisdom that God gives to nine-year-old boys, but somehow withholds from the Supreme Court justices, my son said, because the slave is a human being. I decided to talk with the head of Chicago's Pro-Life Action League, Joe Scheidler, who explained his unique approach to stopping abortions. You were a journalist, um, Bachelor of Journalism at Notre Dame. You've had a successful advertising agency. Why would you give up all this to do this kind of work? Because I think this country is in grave danger. Any country that destroys its posterity at the rate of one every 20 seconds, 4,500 murder of children every day, that country isn't going to survive. Now, as we talk, I've been watching a few of your counselors in front of an abortion clinic across the street. They look like they're very low-key, no signs, no pickets. That's right. How does it work? Well, that's very effective because uh, we now for a picket or a demonstration, we will have signs. But when we're counseling, it's better not to even be identified as pro-life. You simply walk up to the couple and you ask them if they're going for an abortion. They usually say yes. And then you say, do you know anything about this clinic? Well, we do. We know, for instance, that these clinics have a number of malpractice suits against them. We know that just the other day, the police went in there and pulled the doctor out because he was operating without a license or under some kind of a disguise as a doctor. We know all these things, and we tell the women going in. We tell them that one out of 10 of the women having abortions here aren't even pregnant, and we offer them a free pregnancy test and counseling in our own facility just up the street. We've stopped as many as 17 women from having abortions at this clinic in one morning. One of the big complaints of pro-choice is that the pro-life people just talk a woman into keeping the baby at any cost and then just drop her. That's a fiction. They, they know better than that. They know that 4,500 pregnancy help organizations are maintained by pro-lifers in this country. We not only talk the woman out of the abortion into having her baby, but we will get her medical help. We will talk with her family, with her boyfriend. We will help her get a job. We'll find a place for her to stay. If she can't go home, Stay with her folks. We have homes for her. The men are pro-abortion. You find that in any, in any survey, any poll, it's primarily the men who want abortion for the women uh, because uh, being pregnant is kind of a disease. It's like having a broken toy. Well, how do you deal with what you call a macho man? I stopped one not long ago at one of the clinics. He was uh, angry. He was going to hit punch me up. And so I usually start calling him dad. And I said, hey, Dad, come here. I want to show you a picture of my son. And I, I showed him Pete. Pete's a great kid. He could do anything. He's an actor. And I said, now I want to show you your son. Here. This little dismembered baby. That's going to be your son. You'll never play ball with him. He'll never make you proud when he's up there playing a part in a play or something. Well, he was really upset. But most, uh, his biggest concern was the girlfriend. He didn't want her to see this because he certainly didn't want her to have any information at all about a baby. He wanted to get her scraped out. So he went in the clinic angry. And after a while, I had to leave. But he came out after about a half hour. And he said to the, the uh, counselor who was there, tell that bearded guy we didn't have the abortion. He won. I don't know what his reasoning was. Maybe the fact that we were so concerned about somebody he cared nothing about gave a value to that child. 
The involvement of Surgeon General C. Everett Koop with the physically handicapped added a new dimension to the abortion picture. With the work you've done with the handicapped, do you have trouble advising a pregnant woman that's going to deliver a handicapped child in some way to keep her baby? Having spent 35 years of my life doing operations on newborn, newborn babies, perhaps more than anybody in this country ever did until the time I came into government, I know that these children grow up to be uh, creative and innovative. They're loved and they're loving. I think the bottom line of this controversy is in, in the following story. I have never had a parent come to me and say, why did you try so hard to save the life of my child? Nor have I ever had a grown individual, and now they're 35, 37 years old, who came to me and said, why did you try so hard to save my life? My number, number one example of this is a young boy that I operated on with my colleagues 55 times. Uh, you might say, what a tremendous waste of time, effort, money, and emotions. He is now on his way to being a professional. Uh, he is the president of uh, his uh, class in high school and just a fine young man. It's worth the effort. Vicki, this is Lonnie. Through all my investigation of the life issue, I had not yet confronted the one being that had the most at stake in the struggle, the unborn child. Through the technology of real-time ultrasound, this young woman will be able to see the first pictures of her baby. How far along are you? Three and a half months. Oh, are you excited? Yes. What do you want, a boy or a girl? A girl. Okay, Vicki, this is going to be a little cold. It's the scanning gel. the ultrasound scan head. It's the device that sends and uh, receives the signals to produce the image. Now we can see the whole baby. You can see the head and the body. That's just jumping all around. Looks like it has the hiccups. Yeah. It's waving at us. Oh, look at that. See the arm? There's the elbow right there on the forearm and the hand. Whoop. Scratching its nose or something. You see the little heart beating? Whoops. <laughs> to look quickly. He looks pretty comfortable in there, Vicky. Vicky, how do you feel after your ultrasound? happy and excited knowing that my baby's alive and healthy moving it just made me excited not all babies are as lucky as vicky dr john wilkie described fetal experimentation conducted on first trimester aborted children what the experimenter is doing here in this baby obviously has been aborted he's sticking this tiny little child in the most sensitive area right around the nose and mouth this one is about two weeks or three weeks older than the other one, much more sensitive to pain now. You notice this little tiny one is going to complain much more. The, you see the body response is much more vigorous. That cord, incidentally, has been cut, as you can see. And will they just keep poking it? That's obviously what they did here, and this baby died very soon. The specter of abortion looms ever larger in America. 
recorded for the first time are these real-time ultrasound pictures of a suction abortion. Dr. Bernard Nathanson describes what the abortionist is doing. This is an 11-week child. At the extreme right, uh, proceeding up toward the top of the uterus, uh, you can see the coils of the umbilical cord uh, coming off the child's abdomen. Uh, and now, in this image, you can see the instrument being pushed in from the right uh, of the screen, which is, with reasonable probability, uh, a dilator. Once again, we have uh, what appears to be an instrument poking the child's abdomen, and you can see the child recoiling again, moving slightly to the left as the instrument comes in. On the back wall of the uterus, you can see the shadow of the cannula, which is the suction apparatus being pushed in. But now a new assault is mounted. The cannula comes in and out again. The abortionist is moving it on the back wall of the uterus, attempting to suction the child out. The child keeps moving violently away from it. You can see a great deal of agitated movements. The child is obviously agitated and anxious to get away from the cannula and is moving in whatever direction is available in this rather uh, restricted zone of the uterus and the amniotic fluid. So the child is, in a sense, anchored to the suction, and the suction is acting like a giant leech pulling the child back and forth as it attaches itself to the back skin of the child. The uterus overall is beginning to clamp down on this baby. You can now see the head, but the body is badly defined and is probably uh, beginning to come apart. And now the abortionist is introducing a polyp forcep which is a long metallic instrument with two blades into the uterus in an attempt to grab the child's head between the blades of the forcep, crush it, and uh, then remove it from the uterus. The child at this point is still alive. Even the abortionist uh, who actually did the procedure, who was with me at the editing in order to explain exactly what was going on also, turned away from the screen on numerous occasions dismay. Vietnam War hero Senator Jeremiah Denton was deeply affected by the legalization of abortion. Upon returning, uh, politics was the last thing from my mind. The first thing in my mind was the country has changed. And if you think about it very long, life's number one. And uh, life is what you kill. And the commandment says, thou shalt not kill. And our basic premise, the single sentence which establishes our set of perspectives respecting what government is, says inalienable rights among these life endowed by the Creator. No man can take it away. Inalienable means no way uh, to rationalize it away, to change it, to legislate it away. And yet it has effectively been. Yes, it's uh, to me not just a social issue, it's a survival issue. What can a person on the local level do to get involved if they feel the same way you do? What can someone do if they share your views and want to get involved? What would you have an individual do? First of all, I'd have them understand what politics is. And politics is so simple that it's scary. Elections have been won, and I'm talking about congressional elections, have been won on as few as uh, a few dozen votes. So if you persuade your friends and your family to vote for a particular candidate and the election is very close, you could very well make the difference between his winning or losing. So every vote is important. And then you have to have the facts. You have to have a, 
a reasoned viewpoint. You have to think about this issue a lot so that you can't be conned by superficial medical or philosophical or political arguments. How much difference can one person make? Hitler was one person. Idi Amin was one person. Stalin was one person. One person can make all the difference in the world. Dr. Olga Fairfax is a Maryland psychologist who takes time daily to protest at an abortion clinic near her home. I'm only one voice, but I am one voice. And this voice will not be silenced until we get a human life amendment passed to reprotect unborn babies' lives. Well, the efforts against abortion in this country have been ineffective only for one reason, and that is because the evangelicals in this country, of whom there are supposedly 40 million, have done nothing about it. Author, artist, and filmmaker Frankie Schaefer spoke out for pro-life activism. You see them still voting for candidates who have pro-abortion views. They don't have a clear political agenda on the human life issue. They haven't used their freedoms of the right to free speech and assembly. Where are all the evangelicals pouring into the streets to picket things like abortion clinics? If you knew that in your neighborhood, Jane, it was legal to kill 10-year-old children or 50-year-old men or 70-year-old widows or nuns or Catholics or Jews or blacks, you wouldn't drive past that place every day. Crusade for Life founder Donald S. Smith told me about an action any pro-lifer can take. I understand you have a different approach, a presidential proclamation of personhood. What is that? Well, Jane, the presidential proclamation of personhood would establish that all human beings in the United States, irrespective of their age uh, or condition of health or dependency, would be considered persons. Can a presidential proclamation override a Supreme Court decision? You know, in 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and at that time there was a Supreme Court decision, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which stated that the, uh, that the black man was not fully a person. And yet Lincoln issued that proclamation and freed the slaves. You see, the slaves were chattel. They could be held as property. But once they were freed, they could no longer be held as property. And so in a way, it controverted that Supreme Court decision. We think a presidential proclamation of personhood can do the same thing for the unborn child. What has been your biggest frustration over the past decade? I think uh, the biggest frustration is the fact that it's been a past decade. I think that um, it has taken so long for people to realize what the problems are. And I'm afraid some of our people are setting into a, a comfortable acceptance of what the situation is today. And therefore, we're going to have to step up our activities. If we thought we were working hard for the past decade, I have a feeling I need to say to our fellow pro-lifers, you ain't seen nothing yet. And ultimately, we're going to win on this issue. We've just got to win. There are just too many lives involved. Abraham Lincoln quoted the Bible in saying, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You've seen America divided, at war with itself. It's a war between right and expediency, between principle and power. Is an unborn being a new human life to be nurtured and protected and loved? Or is it a possession a simple product of conception that can be destroyed without conscience or concern. The fate of America lies in response to that question. A new generation of this nation hangs in the balance, as does the fate of the newborn, the elderly, and the ill. All those who lie in the shadowy boundary of life in our society. 
Lincoln also said this nation could not endure half slave and half free. Today, we ask if this nation can endure half for abortion and half against it. You've now seen the life issue in all its dimensions. What you decide and what you will do will answer that question. This is Jane Chastain at Twilight in America. When I was first confronted with the issue of abortion in this country, my own emotions were honestly very mixed. Of course I was concerned about the magnitude of the problem, but I thought I was too busy to become involved, spread too thin in my own ministry. But then one day I stopped to really consider the full measure of this problem, and my perspective changed completely. I began to think, how can we as a civilized people stand by and watch this Holocaust continue? Answer was obvious. We can't. If the message of this film has affected your life the way it has mine, then I urge you today to take a stand. Being shocked or disturbed by the problem, that's not enough. For throughout history, God has chosen to work through people, men and women like you and me, willing to speak out, willing to act against moral and spiritual injustice. There is no greater injustice today than abortion. No rights more critical than those of the unborn child. The time has come for those of us who are concerned with this problem to take a stand for righteousness in our land. 